and they went. Maggie felt she was being led down the garden among the roses, being helped with firm, tender care into the boat, having the cushion and cloak arranged for her feet, and her parasol opened for her, which she had forgotten, all by this stronger presence that seemed to bear her along without any act of her own will, like the added self which comes with the sudden exalting influence of a strong tonic, and she felt nothing else. Memory was excluded. They glided rapidly along, Stephen rowing, helped by the backward-flowing tide, past the Tofton trees and houses, on between the silent sunny fields and pastures, which seemed filled with a natural joy that had no reproach for theirs, the breath of the young, unwearied day, the delicious rhythmic dip of the oars, the fragmentary song of a passing bird heard now and then, as if it were only the overflowing of brimful gladness, the sweet solitude of a twofold consciousness that was mingled into one by that grave, untiring gaze which need not be averted. What else could there be in their minds for the first hour? Some low, subdued, languid exclamation of love came from Stephen from time to time, as he went on rowing idly, half automatically. Otherwise they spoke no word, for what could words have been but an inlet to thought? and thought did not belong in that enchanted haze in which they were enveloped. It belonged to the past, and the future that lay outside the haze. Maggie was only dimly conscious of the banks as they passed them, and dwelt with no recognition on the villages. She knew there were several to be passed before they reached Luckworth, where they always stopped and left the boat. At all times she was so liable to fits of absence that she was likely enough to let her waymarks pass unnoticed. But at last Stephen, who had been rowing more and more idly, ceased to row, laid down the oars, folded his arm, and looked down on the water, as if watching the pace at which the boat glided without his help. This sudden change roused Maggie. She looked at the far-stretching fields, at the banks close by, and felt they were entirely strange to her. A terrible alarm took possession of her. "'Oh, have we passed Lackforth, where we were to stop?' she exclaimed, looking back to see if the place were out of sight. No village was to be seen. She turned round again with a look of distressed questioning at Stephen. He went on watching the water, and said in a strange, dreamy, absent tone, "'Yes, a long way.' "'Oh, what shall I do?' cried Maggie in an agony. "'We shall not get home for hours. "'And Lucy, oh, God help me!' "'She clasped her hands and broke into a sob, "'like a frightened child. "'She thought of nothing but of meeting Lucy "'and seeing her look of pained surprise and doubt, "'perhaps of just upbraiding. "'Stephen moved and sat near her "'and gently drew down the clasped hands. "'Maggie,' he said in a deep tone of slow decision, "'let us never go home again.' till no one can part us till we are married. Let us never go home again. The unusual tone, the startling words, arrested Maggie's sob, and she sat quite still, wondering, as if Stephen might have seen some possibilities that would alter everything, and annul the wretched fact. See, Maggie, how everything has come without our seeking. In spite of all our efforts, we never thought of being alone together again. It has all been done by others.' See how the tide is carrying us out, away from all those unnatural bonds that we have been trying to make faster around us, and trying in vain. 
"'It will carry us on to Torby, and we can land there, "'and get some carriage, and hurry to York, and then to Scotland, "'and never pause a moment till we are bound to each other, "'so that only death can part us. "'It is the only right thing, dearest. "'It is the only way of escaping from this wretched entanglement.' "'Everything has concurred to point it out to us. "'We have contrived nothing. "'We have thought of nothing ourselves.' "'Stephen spoke with deep earnest pleading. "'Maggie listened, passing from her startled wonderment "'to the yearning after that belief that the tide was doing it all, "'that she might glide along with a swift silent stream "'and not struggle any more. "'But across that stealing influence "'came the terrible shadow of past thoughts.' and the sudden horror lest now, at last, the moment of fatal intoxication was close upon her, calling up feelings of angry resistance towards Stephen. "'Let me go,' she said in an agitated tone, flashing an indignant look at him, and trying to get her hands free. "'You have wanted to deprive me of any choice. You knew we were come too far. You have dared to take advantage of my thoughtlessness. It is unmanly to bring me to such a position.' Stung by this reproach, he released her hands, moved back to his former place, and folded his arms in a sort of desperation at the difficulty Maggie's words had made present to him. If she would not consent to go on, he must curse himself for the embarrassment he had led her into. But the reproach was the unendurable thing. The one thing worse than parting with her was that she should feel he had acted unworthily towards her. At last he said, in a tone of suppressed rage, I didn't notice that we had passed Luckworth until we had got to the next village, and then it came to my mind that we would go on. I can't justify it. I ought to have told you. It is enough to make you hate me, since you don't love me well enough to make everything else indifferent to you, as I do you. Shall I stop the boat and try to get you out here? I'll tell Lucy I was mad, and that you hate me, and you shall be clear of me forever. No one can blame you.' "'because I have behaved unpardonably to you.' "'Maggie was paralysed. "'It was easier to resist Stephen's pleading "'than this picture he had called up "'of himself suffering while she was vindicated, "'easier even to turn away from his look of tenderness "'than from this look of angry misery "'that seemed to place her in selfish isolation from him. "'He had called up a state of feeling "'in which the reasons which had acted on her conscience "'seemed to be transmitted into mere self-regard. The indignant fire in her eyes was quenched, and she began to look at him with timid distress. She had reproached him for being hurried into irrevocable trespass, she who had been so weak herself. "'As if I shouldn't feel what happened to you just the same,' she said, with reproach of another kind, the reproach of love asking for more trust. This yielding to the idea of Stephen's suffering was more fatal than the other yielding, because it was less distinguishable from that sense of others' claims which was the moral basis of her resistance. He felt all the relenting in her look and tone. It was heaven opening again. He moved to her side and took her hand, leaning his elbow on the back of the boat, and saying nothing. He dreaded to utter another word. He dreaded to make another movement that might provoke another reproach or denial from her. Life hung on her consent, Everything else was hopeless, confused, sickening misery. They glided along in this way, both resting in that silence as in a haven, both dreading lest their feelings should be divided again, till they became aware that the clouds had gathered, and that the slightest perceptible freshening of the breeze was growing and growing, 
so that the whole character of the day was altered. "'You will be chill, Maggie, in this thin dress. "'Let me raise the cloak over your shoulders. "'Get up an instant, dearest.' "'Maggie obeyed. "'There was an unspeakable charm in being told what to do, "'and having everything decided for her. "'She sat down again, covered with the cloak, "'and Stephen took to his oars again, making haste, "'for they must try to get to Torby as fast as they could. "'Maggie was hardly conscious of having said or done anything decisive.' All yielding is attended with a less vivid consciousness than resistance. It is the partial sleep of thought. It is the submergence of her own personality by another. Every influence tended to lull her into acquiescence. That dreamy gliding in the boat which had lasted for four hours and had brought some weariness and exhaustion, the recoil of her fatigued sensations from the impracticable difficulty of getting out of the boat at this unknown distance from home, and walking for long miles, all helped to bring her into a more complete subjection to that strong, mysterious charm which made a last parting from Stephen seem the death of all joy, and made the thought of wounding him like the first touch of the torturing iron before which resolution shrank. And then there was the present happiness of being with him, which was enough to absorb all her languid energy. Presently Stephen observed a vessel coming after them, Several vessels, among them the steamer to Mudport, had passed them with the early tide, but for the last hour they had seen none. He looked more and more eagerly at this vessel, as if a new thought had come into his mind along with it, and then he looked at Maggie hesitatingly. "'Maggie, dearest,' he said at last, "'if this vessel should be going to Mudport, or to any convenient place on the coast northward, it would be our best plan to get them to take us on board.' "'You are fatigued, and it may soon rain. "'It may be a wretched business getting to Torby in this boat. "'It's only a trading vessel, but I dare say you can be made tolerably comfortable. "'We'll take the cushions out of the boat. "'It is really our best plan. "'They'll be glad enough to take us. "'I've plenty of money about me. "'I can pay them well.' "'Maggie's heart began to beat with reawakened alarm at this new proposition. "'But she was silent. "'One course seemed as difficult as another.' Stephen hailed the vessel. It was a Dutch vessel going to Mudport, the English mate informed him, and if this wind held, would be there in less than two days. We have got out too far with our boat, said Stephen. I was trying to make for Torby, but I'm afraid of the weather, and this lady, my wife, will be exhausted with fatigue and hunger. Take us on board, will you, and haul up the boat. I'll pay you well. Maggie, now really faint and trembling with fear, was taken on board, making an interesting object of contemplation to admiring Dutchmen. The mate feared the lady would have a poor time of it on board, for they had no accommodation for such entirely unlooked-for passengers, no private cabin larger than an old-fashioned church pew. But at least they had Dutch cleanliness, which makes all other inconveniences tolerable, and the boat cushions were spread into a couch for Maggie on the poop with all alacrity. But to pace up and down the deck leaning on Stephen, being upheld by his strength, was the first change that she needed. Then came food, and then quiet reclining on the cushions, with the sense that no new resolution could be taken that day. Everything must wait till tomorrow. Stephen sat beside her, with her hand in his. They could only speak to each other in low tones, only look at each other now and then, 
for it would take a long while to dull the curiosity of the five men on board, and reduce these handsome young strangers to that minor degree of interest which belongs, in a sailor's regard, to all objects nearer than the horizon. But Stephen was triumphantly happy. Every other thought or care was thrown into the unmarked perspective by the certainty that Maggie must be his. The leap had been taken now. He had been tortured by scruples. He had fought fiercely with overmastering inclination. He had hesitated. But repentance was impossible. He murmured forth in fragmentary sentences his happiness, his adoration, his tenderness, his belief that their life together must be heaven, that her presence with him would give rapture to every common day, that to satisfy her lightest wish was dearer to him than all other bliss, that everything was easy for her sake, except to part with her, and now they never would part. He would belong to her for ever, and all that was his was hers, had no value for him except as it was hers. Such things, uttered in low, broken tones, by the one voice that has first stored the fibre of young passion, have only a feeble effect, on experienced minds at a distance from them. To poor Maggie they were very near. They were like nectar, held close to thirsty lips. There was, must be then, a life for mortals here below, which was not hard and chill, in which affection would no longer be self-sacrifice. Stephen's passionate words made the vision of such life more fully present to her than it had ever been before. And the vision, for the time, excluded all realities, all except the returning sun-gleams which broke out on the water as the evening approached, and mingled with the visionary sunlight of promised happiness, all except the hand that pressed hers, and the voice that spoke to her, and the eyes that looked at her with grave, unspeakable love. There was to be no rain after all. The clouds rolled off to the horizon again, making the great purple rampart and long purple aisles of that wondrous land which reveals itself to us when the sun goes down, the land that the evening star watches over. Maggie was to sleep all night on the poop. It was better than going below, and she was covered with the warmest wrappings the ship could furnish. It was still early when the fatigues of the day brought on a drowsy longing for perfect rest, and she laid down her head, looking at the faint dying flush in the west, where the one golden lamp was getting brighter and brighter. Then she looked up at Stephen, who was still seated by her, hanging over her as he leaned his arm against the vessel's side. Behind all the delicious visions of these last hours, which had flowed over her like a soft stream, and made her entirely passive, there was the dim consciousness that the condition was a transient one, and that the morrow must bring back the old life of struggle. There were thoughts which would presently avenge themselves for this oblivion. But now nothing was distinct to her. She was being lulled to sleep with that soft stream still flowing over her with those delicious visions melting and fading like the wondrous aerial land of the West. End of Book 6, Chapter 13 of The Mill on the Floss